irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Planet Ocean For a long, long time, I contemplated the ocean without understanding it. I could feel the immense energy of its waters. I was astonished by the depths of its blues. I breathed the air of the wide open seas. But in reality, I saw nothing. Here at Shark Bay in Australia, the cliffs whisper to me the history of the earth. They are born from the life of the ocean, a vast graveyard created by billions of skeletons of marine animals, accumulated at the bottom of the seas when the earth itself was entirely ocean. These organisms created the air that I breathe and the atmosphere which protects me. I see powerful tides carving furrows in the sand. I don't see that this movement is the source of all life. I see the winds shaping the dunes. I don't see the deep relationship between the earth and the sea. I see the salt bleaching the arid earth. I don't see what the ocean brings to life on the continents. I see immense prairies colonize the depths that I have never seen on land. But at Shark Bay, there is more than that. Here are the origins of our story. Us, mankind. It begins here, with a colony of living fossils, bacteria who live at the surface of the ocean, called stromatolites. I am a descendant of this form of life, the most ancient known on Earth, which came into being four billion years 
ago. I come from here. I come from the ocean. And now, facing the ocean, all I can see is us, mankind. We are seven billion human beings. We have shaped the world in our image. On the shores of the ocean, we have built vast cities where we live in our millions. We have dug out ports, flattened islands to construct our factories. The ocean has brought us all the mineral riches of the world. We work materials, meld steel, cut and slice. 100,000 of our ships crisscross the seas. All that lives, all that grows on the earth will one day pass through our iron grasp. We even transport the forests. We delve unceasingly into the ocean to nourish ourselves. We have become super predators. We have canned the entire world. 600 million containers that we can transport thanks to the ocean. The ocean that offered us the possibility of globalization. The planet is ours. But now, where are we going? I am becoming aware of the consequences of my power. Overfishing, global warming, depletion of resources, pollution. My drive has taken me a long way. I know this because I am capable of understanding what happens to me. How have I gotten to this point where I no longer see what is around me? To understand that, we have to return to the very beginning. In the beginning, the earth consumed itself, shaken by violent convulsions. The fusing matter was subjected to violent bombardments of meteors coming from the solar system. This battlefield gave rise to an atmosphere, stormy, red with nitrogen, carbon, and hydrogen, and water vapor, which came from the galaxy. The surface of the Earth was like an enormous bubble heated under pressure to over 700 degrees Celsius. Then the inferno cooled off and the vapors condensed, producing the greatest of the terrestrial floods that occurred. That was four billion years ago. The flood covered almost all of the Earth's crust. The water washed the primordial rock, eroding it away and becoming laden with salts. The earth became a world of salty water. This water was called the ocean. An ocean planet was born. In the ice age, 700 million years ago, the temperature fell. The planet remained white for 20 million years, then melted because of a powerful greenhouse effect created by carbon of the volcanoes. Other glaciations followed, alternating with warming. From this period, there remains vast icy regions at the north and south poles of the globe. 
these regions work as coolers in an immense climate system. Close to the equator, the sun heats the ocean, which seems to boil. This contrasts between the hot regions and the cold regions, generates powerful air currents. There are winds essential to this story. The wind descends cold and heavy from the polar regions and complies with the hot, light air of the equator. These winds curve by the rotation of the Earth, form gigantic whirlpools. On contact with the ocean, these winds push the water. They generate powerful marine currents capable of moving millions of cubic meters of water across the ocean. Everywhere, the ocean is furrowed by whirlpools, some of which spin for years. This movement spreads heat from the surface of the blue planet. The hot water of the tropics rises up towards the poles. Then this water cools, becomes more dense, laden with salt, and falls down into the depths. The water of the depths travels further down towards the bottom of the ocean, pushed by its own weight. It carries with it polar cold. Finally, it collides against the bottom and returns towards the waters of the surface, where it reheats. It takes a thousand years for a drop of water to complete this ocean cycle. These currents have created a temperature climate on Earth. It is to them we owe the creation of a living planet. When the sun is strong and the currents mount to the surface, an astonishing phenomena occurs, so gigantic that it is visible from space, a blooming, an explosion of life. This life which appears is called plankton, floating life, because it cannot move itself and drifts in the water. This blooming gets its energy from the sun. It occurs between the surface and the first hundred meters depth, where the rays penetrate the ocean. Firstly, there are tiny algae which spread like an immense floating prairie between two expanses of water. Just the biomass thus produced every year represents half the vegetation of the planet. Some microalgae resembles distant galaxies. These are protocysts, very ancient organisms. Despite their complexity, most of them are nothing but a single cell surrounded by a silica or lime skeleton. At this level, the distinction between plant and animal is blurred. Some of these green cells even have limbs, which push them upwards, augmenting their surface area exposed to the sun. All these microalgaes consume carbon and produce, in return, oxygen. Half the air we breathe comes from these microalgaes. The ocean is the blue lung of the planet.
this vegetable flowering triggers another explosion of life, that of billions of herbivorous animals, which come to feed off the marine prairie. These animals measure hardly a few millimeters, often much less. They're classified as jellyfish, crustaceans, cells, shellfish, larvae, thousands of groups of species. Among the most important of them are the innumerable tiny shrimp, the krill, which gaze on algae night and day, and the copepods, a sort of tiny sea flea who swim by leaping, propelled by their limbs. The copepods are hunted by all. The carnivores and the plankton, in particular, these narrow-shaped predators, voracious and armed with silicon teeth. In this jungle, prey and predators mingle constantly, and there is always a crustacean ready to consume the preceding predators. Each instant of life is an act of survival. The plankton is an open book in which we can read the history of the ocean. During three billion years, life has evolved here, in this marine prairie. Some very ancient species, like the gelatinous animals, have only evolved in the ocean. In perfect harmony with the liquid environment, they have an elastic body, which allows them simultaneously to suck in food and move. Sometimes, they hook onto one another forming immense chains to facilitate moving in the current. It looks chaotic, but each living entity is organized down to the smallest detail. These explosions of life eventually disappear, devoured by a lack of resources or wiped out by an invisible enemy, an attack by a virus. Billions of viruses whose biological role is to regulate each explosion of life. Nature doesn't tolerate excess. All the species in the ocean are dependent on this invisible plankton, like a long chain of life. At the end of the winter, the mackerel depart from hibernation in the depths of the ocean. They come up to the surface, seeking the marine prairie. The fish have no leader, and yet they maneuver in perfect formation. Each fish is continuously aware of the presence of its neighbors and respects their distance. This self-organization is fundamental law of the group. It enables them to hunt as a shoal and increases the chances of finding a rich feeding zone. The first who finds something can guide the others by a simple movement. The sailfish is the fastest fish in the ocean. It feeds on fish. Its dorsal fin gives it exceptional stability to achieve its predatory goals. A 100 kilo sailfish will consume in its lifetime 1,000 kilos of mackerel who themselves have consumed who themselves has grazed on the 100,000 kilos of marine prairie. The food chain is a hierarchy 
a pyramid structure. Some species choose to help one another. Manta rays only eat plankton. Their six-meter wingspan offers shelter. In return, the smaller fish remove the host's parasites. Others opt for the whale shark, the largest of the fish. This traveler crosses entire oceans in search of plankton. It carries with it smaller fish who live off its intake. Solidarity has also a role in this liquid immensity. 4,000 meters deep, covering two-thirds of the planet. Sometimes this journey is interrupted by land. Here in Raja Ampat, in Indonesia, land appeared where the ocean retreated two billion years ago. These limestone hills were previously at the bottom of the ocean. Like at Shark Bay in Australia, they are made of billions of plankton skeletons piled up in the geological era when the ocean covered the planet. With the receding of the waters, erosion sculpted the rock into an elaborated graveyard, a labyrinth of 1,500 islands of fossilized plankton. The Raja Ampat archipelago is at the heart of a region rich in biodiversity. 1,400 species of fish live here, and a quarter of all marine species. Coming into contact with these emerging lands, probably struggling against exhaustion and hunger, some plankton abandoned nomadic life and settled here. That was 500 million years ago, a revolution in the ocean. This family of plankton created the coral reefs, Coral is a creature we rarely actually see by day. What we see in the daytime is the Coracula skeleton, which serves as its shelter, a skeleton that resembles a tree branch or leaves. To survive in these waters, scarce in nutrients, coral shelters in algae within it, which feeds by day on sunlight. The algae has thus become the driving force of the construction aiming to occupy the best place in the sun. Each coral struggles against its neighbors to gain more light. At the speed of a few millimeters per year, this petrified forest is the most densely populated ecosystem in the ocean planet, a veritable oasis. You can hide here and hunt here. Each has his own territory. Everything about life here is organized. Even the colors of the fish represent camouflage or seduction. Like a marvelous marine city, crowds pour in through the gates. They come from far away to get rid of their parasites because only the reef offers enough diversity to guarantee the kind of service. Millions of years of evolution have enabled each species to find a place and a role in this coral metropolis. The scorpion fish camouflages itself while the spider crab lets itself be colonized by shellfish and becomes invisible when motionless. Or you can hide. Or, as in even every cosmopolitan city, life in the reef is not spontaneous. There are codes. 
rules of social life to be respected if you don't want to end up in your neighbor's stomach. Concealment becomes an art for the octopi, capable of changing the color and structure of their skin to deceive all their attackers. Despite this risk of all this collective existence, many species use the reef as a nursery. Of all the ocean, it is still the best place that offers the best chance for raising a family. Cuttlefish protect their eggs by hiding them as deep as possible in the branches of the coral so that other fish cannot eat them. But for how long? Prey and predators are so close. The tentacles of the anemas are poisonous, even deadlies. Only clownfish can live among them. They immunize themselves by rubbing against the tentacles from a very young age. This natural vaccination then enables them to use the anemone as a refuge. For those who do not know the reef, this marvelous city is in fact full of danger. The zynid is not a flower, but a coral with a skeleton, an animal that traps the plankton in its tentacles. At night, the reef is even more dangerous. The living part of the coral, the polyp, is invisible by day, but appears at night. This gelatinous creature is a distant cousin of the jellyfish. It also hunts with its tentacles. Immobile in the reef, it relies on the marine currents to bring its prey. Too bad for those who float too close. Its tentacles immobilize everything that touches them by injecting a deadly poison. Sometimes even a digestive sugar so powerful that it can digest living things. The reef is a dangerous predator. Once trapped, the victim cannot escape from the arms which pull it slowly towards the mouth where it will be digested. Once a year, at exactly the same time, at the spring full moon, an extraordinary event occurs. The reef enters its reproductive phase. By millions, they release male and female gametes. Fusing together, they give birth to larvae, the larvae of future coral reefs. This release of eggs happens only once a year. It lasts for only a few hours, and it depends on perfect synchronization between all the corals of a given species. The larvae are dispersed by the current for several days and nights before landing further away. They leave to conquer a new territory. Those which survive fix on new walls of the deep sea to penetrate, perpetuate the immense coral city, which give birth to them. It is a constant expansion. For 500 million years, the coral has been growing, dying, and growing. Their construction has built an empire, visible from the skies, the biggest living construct of the planet. All the fauna of the ocean is linked to these oases of life. In Polynesia, the grouper makes a long voyage to come and lay their eggs on the side of the reef. It is a huge meeting for this normally solitary community who come to the lagoon seeking shelter for their reproduction. But this meeting is also attended by marauding gray sharks, 
In the course of their lives, groupers start off female, then change sex and become male once they're above a certain weight and age. They leap forward, mixing their sperm. The females, weakened by laying, make easy prey. The sharks attack. They will massacre many of the groupers, but this predation, paradoxically, is vital for the grouper as a species, who will otherwise reproduce too fast and become too numerous. Here again, nature does not tolerate excess. There's always one predator waiting just above another. Hammerhead sharks are fearsome hunters, evolving 20 million years ago. These animals are super predators. Their hammer-shaped heads act like a fin and promotes agility. The position of the eyes, very far apart, gives them 3D vision. They hunt the fish and other sharks as if the cycle of predation governed the evolution of the species. And here's where we appear in the story. Here where, here we are, people, the last link in the chain of life. We have no predator above us. We began here, on the other side of the mirror of the ocean. We occupy the land which emerged. Very long ago to protect ourselves, we built villages like those that still exist at San Blas in Panama. We can't swim like the fish, so we conceived boats to cross the oceans. And then we built a world like nothing any other species has built before us. To build our towns, we constructed bridges between islands. We conquered the ocean via the land. We learned to dig through mountains, change the course of waters, and even create islands. We built an empire even bigger than the coral cities. Our walls... Our enormous towns can be seen from the sky. Through our intelligence, we, weak humanity, became really very strong. Rich or poor, half the people of our world live less than 100 kilometers from the water. Almost the entire population of the sub-Saharan Africa is concentrated on the coastline. Just in the city of Lagos in Nigeria, has 17 million inhabitants. More than 100,000 people live in the shanty towns on the shore. The population that migrated here has no place on land, so they turn to the sea. Our population is constantly growing. We are more than 7 billion. Every second that goes by, there are two more people on the planet to be fed. And we are hungry, so naturally we turn to the ocean to feed us. Three million people depend directly on marine resources. For almost a billion people, fish represent their only source of animal proteins. The ocean is key to our survival. Four million of our fishing boats set out each day to attack the ocean. The majority are just little boats like these which unload each morning off the coast of Senegal. Our fishing has been since the beginning a family craft, practiced and transmitted from generation to generation. Although it's a dangerous profession, when people can't feed off the land, the poorest turn to the sea. 
worldwide, including indirect employment and families, fishing sustains 500 million people. Here, I see the abundance of the ocean. The ocean brings us other food. Since the very beginning of our story, we have gathered wild seaweeds on the shore. They have existed for three and a half billion years. We've learned to cultivate the sea as we came to farm the land. The seaweed needs only six weeks of growth before harvest. It requires only sunlight and the movements of the currents. Today in Bali, Indonesia, we cultivated seaweed and extract from it a nourishing gelatin. This farming today produces 15 million tons of seaweed exported all over the world. Brown, green, and red seaweed serve all purposes, medicine, cloth, fertilizer, and food. We trace our small portions of sea and transform estuaries into private concessions. More than 500,000 hectares of globe are dedicated to cultivation of seaweed, supporting a million sea farmers. In South Korea, in the Wando Archipelago, over 200 islands have converted to farming seaweeds. These magnificent expanses are immense nets spread out in the sun, which are used to dry the harvest. Of the 30,000 species of seaweed which grow in the seed, only about 50 are edible. Here we grow kombu, large seaweed which can grow to three meters in length. In Asia, this seaweed is a basic food source. These sugar-flavored leaves contain proteins, minerals, salts, and vitamins. We have been fishing for 40,000 years, constantly improving our fisheries and nets. Fishing became an industry. It is no longer a question of family, but of investment and technology. To increase our catch, our fishermen form fleets. What changed everything is the invention of the deep sea trawl, a large net with a funnel-shaped opening like the mouth of a whale shark. Our nets are so large that some measure 40 kilometers or 25 miles. Then, entire factories took to the seas. We use probes, radar, and focus all our ingenuity on hunting down marine life. Every year we fish 90 million tons of wild fish globally. Half this amount is fished by only our trawlers. Our scenes, our nets are so huge that we no longer choose what we're taking. We take whatever comes and sort it later according to the market value of the fish. Alaskan pollock, Atlantic herring, we just scoop it all up. There is no limit to our predation. Apart from the fish quotas, fixed by scientists but who can prevent us from exceeding them worldwide 80% of commercial fish stocks have been declared fully exploited or overexploited. our fishing has reached a ceiling we are at a biological limit 
How could we have gotten to this point? Our intensive fishing sacrifices millions of fish. These are the wastes, the rejects of the cache, or just the fish that got crushed to the death in our nets. Fish killed for nothing. As the stocks near the surface runs out, we rake further and further deeper and deeper. Our trawlers now go down to more than 3,000 meters. We blindly fish a fauna we hardly know, the fauna of the abyss that lives in the dark alone and hungry. In the abyss, the light gradually disappears. Life flourishes around this absence of light. And what a life. At around 100 meters deep, the central fours, these gelatinous creatures, possess luminous organs to frighten off their enemies. Still deeper, a thousand meters below the surface in the ocean twilight, we find the siphtophores. These are the largest kind of plankton. Some measure up to 50 meters. Their organs are not spread out, but grouped together. On one side, they have their stomachs. On the other, the swim bladders they use to float. Between the two, they deploy a net to trap any food which falls from the surface. Descending into the abyss is like traveling back into a biological time machine. There are maybe 2,000 species of abyss-dwelling fish, a terrifying beastery, viper fish that can eat things larger than themselves, gulper eels that gobble everything which passes. Survival is tough at 1,500 meters deep. At around 3,000 meters, there is no more light. It is the kingdom of the vampire squid, a prehistoric cousin of the squid. The vampire squid has blue blood laced with copper. Its enormous eyes detect slight variation in contrast above it towards the surface. Its vision is entirely adapted to the shadows. The sedimentary plain, uniform in gray, seems to stretch out of sight and span lit by the camera. When we approach this spongy march, we can see carnivorous sponges at work. When waste touches the bottom, crabs, eels, carnivorous sponges gorge onto it. Invisible in the mud, billions of bacteria break down what remains of the living. Here, species live more slowly, sometimes to 150 years old, because of the extraordinary pressure at minus 4,000 meters at the bottom of the sea. Oxygen is scarce, and yet, here we are. In this world we hardly know. Here we are, because we're afraid of running out. We're looking to feed our addiction to oil. The ocean seems to be made of water, but in reality, it's an alliance between life, chemistry, and geology. All the wastes, corpses, particles of seaweed which come down from the surface, each tiny cell of the ocean finishes its life here in marine snow. For millions of years, dead plankton loaded with carbon has been building up at the bottom of the seas. It piles up in thick layers and gives rise to these rocks, which we call limestone, and which emerge in the peaks at each lowering of the level of the sea. Sometimes this heap of corpses doesn't transform into rock, but rather slowly melts down into an organic substance, viscous and black, oil. 
It exists everywhere, almost on the seabeds and on the land where the ocean once covered the planet. We begin by pumping out the shallow deposits, but these reserves are already running out, and we seek further and further, deeper and deeper. We are now exploring deposits drilling up to 7,000 meters deep. The last reserves of oil tomorrow will be found in the most inaccessible zones of the sea. These flames are plankton burning, life burning. We have 20,000 oil rigs on the world's seas. Every year we burn the equivalent of a million years of laying down of plankton. Our industrial revolution has cost the planet. We transport 2 billion tons of oil every year on board our super tankers, which are the biggest mobile constructions that exist. Oil is the main source of energy for our civilizations. This energy propels us beyond all limits. In their gigantic holes, these ships are carrying a part of the biogeological history of the ocean. With this revolution, our lives have changed, that of the planet also. We need our ships so much that we have cut America in two to link the seas. We created the Panama Canal, a slash of 80 kilometers right through the jungle. Every year, 13,000 ships can go faster and further a ship crossing the mountain every 45 minutes. To feed the locks of our canal, we created an enormous lake, Lake Gatun, which stocks rainwater. When the rains are scarce, the canal risks technical failure. Stocks of raw materials, gas, factory ships, transports of vehicles, cruise ships, and infinite diversity of vessels. We transport three-quarters of our merchandise by ocean routes, The admiral ship of all our boats is the container ship. Ships carrying thousands of identical metal boxes. The riches of the world, which power our factories, produce new wealth, which gives us the means to transform our villages into immense cities. Here in Panama City, we're the only jungle. Today, money is flowing in tides. Rotterdam, Durban, San Francisco, Singapore and our ships weave a web between the continents. The oceans bring together our towns into a single world. All the sea routes converge on Asia. Of the top 50 ports in the world, and the most important, is Shanghai. It is located at one end of the 34-kilometer bridge, an island in the open sea, which was raised to build a freshwater port. It is the biggest port in the world, On the kilometers of Quayside, giant cranes unload every year, which will be exchanged, rerouted, stocked. Who knows where our boxes are going and what they contain? Container transport is like a game of empty boxes to be filled and full boxes to be emptied. We have 600 million containers circulating on the ocean. They are the key link in the world we have created. The ocean made globalization possible. The demand is so great that our fleet of container ships has tripled in under 10 years. 3,000 cargo ships are currently under construction in the shipyards of Korea, China, and Japan, which provide 90% of the world's production. Everything here is oversized. 
Gigantic yards employing more than 10,000 workers cut and extend these existing ships. We assemble ships over 400 meters long, an area of four football fields. This relentless growth of the ship industry is only responding to another industrial need. The world's factories have moved here. The ocean has enabled the globalization of our industries. A single ship can bring an entire forest to our factories, which transform it into paper, planks, furniture, manufactured products. China is the world's top importer of logs. Thanks to the ocean, no forest is safe. Over 500 million tons of raw materials arrive in Shanghai every year by sea. Supplies of crude steel, coal, wood, copper, all the scarce minerals that we take from the planet. Right around the port zone, our factories melt steel to produce a new chemistry for other factories, which construct, assemble, and wrap products destined to be exported all over the world. The life of 7 billion people is connected to this part of the world. What can these fishermen catch here, in the waste of, from these factories, and at the heart of this dehumanized world? Our tentacular towns sprout like mushrooms. Shanghai is a symbol of our heading rush. 23 million people are living in the Shanghai megapolis. Over 6,000 buildings have sprung from the earth. 20,000 new building sites are in progress a frenzy of construction climbing towards the sky. Every country in the world dreams of having the growth rate of Shanghai and China. Our cities are spreading beyond the land, but owe their fortune to being at the gates of the ocean. Planet Ocean has become our planet. But if we were wrong, the ocean that we came from seems so far from us today. In barely 200 years, we have violently disrupted four billion years of the natural history of the world. We no longer see the beauty of life, but only what it can do for our species, what it enables us to produce. Everything that lives around us suffers from our existence. We leave fruit footprints everywhere we go. They say these sperm whales are dreaming head downward. Maybe it's us that are dreaming thinking that we can carry on this frenzy of growth without any consequence. 100,000 of our ships crisscross the seas of our planet unceasingly. The more our needs grow, the more numerous our machines become. No matter what we do, our industrialized civilization is destroying the natural world around it. The risk of pollution has become a threat to everything that comes near us. Our gigantic motors burn tons of petrol and oil by the hour. We spit out polluting materials in all directions into the air and the ocean. In polar regions, the permanent ice cap is melting as a result of global warming. There are no factories here, no machines, and yet this is heating up caused by our own carbon emissions. Fossil energy, the oil we need for our civilization, is causing the ocean to overheat. But the melting of the Arctic has another, more serious consequence. In the north, the melting of the permanent Arctic ice caps is revealing open ocean. The water absorbs the solar heat that the ice used to reflect back. This phenomena is amplified. The ocean itself is accelerating the warming. In Greenland, as in the Antarctic, 
The glaciers which covered the protruding lands are made of fresh water. Their melt sends streams of fresh water into the salty sea. The great circulation of marine currents that flow around the globe and regulate the climate is gradually blocking up. What will be the consequences? In human memory, no such change has ever been experienced. So we can't know. Over 20,000 kilometers away, very far from the polar regions, climate change is already having an effect. It is invisible from the surface. To see it, you have to dive to reefs in the tropics, like on the edge of the Blue Hole in Belize, the second largest coral reef in the world. Coral reefs are highly sensitive to change in temperature. A difference of less than one degree for a few weeks is enough to kill them. Only a reef of white skeleton remains. These white areas are spreading. Scientists are very worried. A quarter of our corals on our planet have died in the last 50 years. The immediate problem is not their death, but rather the impact of their disappearance. Dying, they leave nothing behind. The marine oasis has become a desert. Further out to sea... The immensity of the ocean hides other facts. After the coral, it's the state of health of plankton, which becomes critical. Scientific missions are multiplying on the ocean that we are just beginning to discover. They are trying to understand what is going to change in marine life, the life that feeds us. It seems that the plankton at the base of all the food chains is moving toward the polar region where the waters are still temperate. In 50 years, it has moved. This redistribution of plankton is already having an effect on marine life. Every year, cow nose rays migrate between Brazil and the temperate zones in search of food. Every year, the journey takes them north a little more, a little further north. Global warming is disrupting the ecology of the ocean. With this change, our fishing territories are also changing. But I know that we can't stop ourselves from fishing. In Chile, where a quarter of the world's tonnage is fished, the sea supports thousands of traditional fishermen and their families. Many are heavily in debt to pay for their boats. Commercial species are becoming scarce, so they are turning to what remains. We didn't eat Chilean sardine and Peruvian anchovy in the past, but now we fish over 10 million tons of them per year. Extraordinary pressure on a single species, the only one remaining in these waters. Right along the coast of Chile, a powerful current rises up from the bottom of the ocean. It's still rich in plankton, and the sardines are abundant. This is an upwelling current. It churns the seawater, bringing nutrients. Seals and birds come to hunt the small fish, which gather around these rising waters. The Chileans fish with sand nets, a very long net that closes over 40 tons of catch. 500,000 fish in each net that a machine sucks up into the hold. Those sardines only live a few years. They reproduce rapidly. These blue fish are the last still holding out in this world. We don't eat these fish. We catch them to make fish meal. Fish meal which feeds farmed fish. In total, 25 million tons of sea fish are raised every year, most of the production coming from Norway and Chile. We only raise species with high market value, sea bream, salmon, and bass. Four kilos of wild sardines are needed to produce one kilo 
of farmed fish. Our fish farming is an industry based on a wild resource. And when there are no more sardines, what will we do? As our resources run out, we go further and further. At this rate, we are headed for catastrophe. What's striking is that we don't see what's happening. Even at the heart of this city facing the ocean, the disgusting, pollu disgusting pollution means we cannot go into the sea. We had to build a pool to swim in the most beautiful bay in the world, the bay which has become dangerous to our health. In Rio, like everywhere in the world, we built a colossus, a symbol of eternity, as if to protect ourselves. He contemplates the ocean, but what can he do for us? No religion, no belief will save us. It's not a time for believing in the promises of heaven. Only our intelligence enables us to foresee and prepare our future. We can still change direction. There is still time to imagine a humanist and responsible stewardship of the planet. To remain on our ocean planet. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.